Good everybody in the Manihiri Tauranga Tenakoto Katoka Michelle Toka Inwa. I'm so excited to be here with real people today. Welcome to Arab's podcast, Sustainable Forces, a podcast about people joining forces to help solve some of the most complex sustainable development challenges. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, and I'm joining you with a live audience today from Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa. Today, we are talking about rebalancing our cities as we have learned through this podcast series. Our cities are constantly changing from new infrastructure going in, new environmental challenges, changing its landscape through to how the people living and working in it require new things as their city grows. Rebalancing a city is how we respond as a collective as we try to understand the parameters needed to design our cities with the needs of today's and our future needs. A healthy city is constantly evolving and it's never perfectly balanced, it's never stable, and it's never a finished product. Its richness is embodied in its dynamic nature, and sometimes an imbalance propels the change and innovation needed to help lead to better experiences. Now, as we all know, the past few years have shown us how quickly things can change. We've had a global pandemic, some severe weather events, including floods, heat waves, and fires, which have totally changed the way that we live and work in our cities. Their need for rebalance has probably never been more obvious. And while it's hard to predict the future, we can use our knowledge and our skills to design for what's probable by looking at projects that consider current conditions, rebalancing vision, and they focus on serving the needs of today with a view towards the horizon. So, while they don't have any crystal balls in their hands, today we are going to talk to two experts who spend their time helping to plan for this future horizon. Firstly, I am joined by Katia Litz, who is General Manager, Urban Planning and Design at Kainga Order Homes and Communities. Hi, Katia. Morena, thanks for having us. And Malcolm Smith, who is Arab Cities Leader in Australasia. Hi, Malcolm. Morning. So, Katja, I'm going to start with you. Kainga Order Homes and Communities is the New Zealand government agency responsible for providing housing to New Zealanders in need. But its name means much more than housing. Order is the concept of well-being and Kainga is more descriptions of homes and communities rather than just a physical house. So already within your organization, you're thinking of a place that people live from more of a holistic and a connected view. So let's dive into that, Katya. Can you talk about your role at Kaingo Order Homes and Communities and some of the work that your organization does? Okay, thanks, Michelle. I might start a little bit by giving you an overview of what Kaingora is and what we do. So Kaingora is quite a young organisation. We were formed um, late 2019 and we are a government-owned entity. And um, what the intent was in 2019 was to really bring all the delivery expertise um, and capacity that the government holds into one organisation in the housing and urban development space. So we've got two quite distinct functions. We are the country's public housing or internationally sometimes called social housing landlord. So we um, own and operate um, over 70,000 homes up and down the country. We have homes in nearly every town in New Zealand and we um, look after those homes, we maintain those homes and we also look after the customers um, that live in those homes. So in our homes there's about 200,000 people um, that we look after. Um, and because we are growing the number of public housing um, places that um, New Zealand has, 
And um, a lot of the homes that we have are old. You know, there was a big state housing build drive in the 50s and the 60s. So a lot of those homes have come to the end of their life and now need to be replaced. And so as a result, we are currently New Zealand's biggest home builder as well as the biggest landlord. Um, and then on top of that, we are also New Zealand's urban development agency. And what we do in that capacity is we have a number of urban development powers that are aimed at unlocking complex issues in the urban space. And we um, redevelop um, our own land holdings and we have the ability to purchase new land and develop that also. Um, what I do within the organisation is I lead a group of people who are very much involved um, in the urban development part of the business and we're specifically involved at the front end. So I have the team that holds the urban development powers. I have a whole lot of urban designers and planners and one of the urban designers is in the audience today so it's really nice to have you here, George. And um, so what we do is we really plan new projects and we think about what we're trying to achieve and how we might go about that and then we hand them over to a different part of the business for delivery. And how did you get here? Are you an urban planner by No, training? I'm not. I've, I've come um, to this business like a lot of us actually from, from by a slightly you know strange journey. So I've very much come from a sustainability background. I have a degree in environmental technology and then an MBA from Auckland University. And um, my journey really started with one um, of the local government entities in Auckland, Waitakere City Council, who embarked on a really ambitious eco-city vision. And that has really shaped me as a person and really shaped my career. So I've come to the urban question really from a sustainability background. We'll come back to that later, Markham. I'd like to chat to you. Now, your role right now is defined at Arup as city's leader in Australasia. But I know that you have worked on some incredible projects across the globe. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the city-shaping projects you've been involved in at Arup? Yeah, Michelle, look, thank you. Uh, yes, that's right, kind of city's leader, Australasia. But I guess I'm a COVID re returner. Um, grew up in Queensland, studied architecture and uh, worked in Queensland for a while, you know, this kind of subtropical environment of, you know, the nirvana of sunshine, you know, maybe not what it's all cut out to be, and um, uh, decided to, to head off overseas, studied in America, and then one Friday afternoon got a phone call from Arab in London saying, what are you doing? So I ended up there and 24 years later, thought, looked at the world and saw it changing, and, and so came back and now based in Melbourne and delighted to be with my colleagues here in Auckland for, for a few weeks uh, often at the moment. But look, there were one or two projects that have been so lucky to work around. Um, we started out in the east of London, some of the most deprived boroughs of Europe, looking at the way in which the high-speed one railway system was coming through and the opportunity for that socioeconomic change that could, that infrastructure could change. And now it's now 20 years. I it's hard to believe 20 years working on a project of a piece of city. Um, 2007 was an interesting journey. We might talk about that a little bit later on the eco city in Dongtan. Um, and also working in, you know, Amsterdam, you know, understanding the way in which a kind of a, a social political context to so the way in which the Dutch people see their cities influences the way they shape mm -hmm. the cities. So, so getting that kind of seeing the way in which those variables play across each other in different cultures, in different politics, 
in different climates has been intriguing. Yeah. Well, welcome home. Thank Glad you. To have you back. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit about what that experience may be um, that you've learned is going to bring back maybe to both Australia and New Zealand. But yeah. look, you talked a little bit about, you know, train and hard infrastructure. And we talk about things like physical buildings and roads. And sometimes it's easy to forget looking out of our city's windows that our cities are actually constantly changing and constantly in need of change. So Malcolm, we're talking about rebalancing a city today. I don't really know what an unbalanced city looks like. Can you help me, <laughs> help me understand that, please? Oh, I, I think an unbalanced city is actually, there's a pretty easy test when it kind of doesn't feel convenient. And that can be just the ease of walking or orientating yourself, of moving, of feeling connected to a place, whether that's culturally or climatically. I think you can feel the note when, when place becomes Unbalanced. Now that can be at a kind of a macro scale of the city, you know, the way in which we all kind of share views and, and orient, or it can be a very personal dimension. And I think that's the challenge of as we think about the futures. There's always an interesting test of, you know, how do you how do you kind of understand is is a city changing? I always ask ourselves when we're thinking about projects in in a hundred years, the ideas that we're playing with now. What are we going to leave behind. Will the world see that we're on the cusp of this ecological age? And ah, that was the age where, you know, Auckland began to change into an ecological or an inclusive city. And it moved away from, you know, the aspirations of the car in the 1950s to a society that moved itself differently. So balancing those conditions in response to belief, technology, priorities, I think is 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 what we're we're exploring for rebalancing cities. I love it. So every time we complain about the traffic or the lack of public transport, we, we're well, we, we're, I think I think I think it's an illustration. That's the point. <laughs> We've moved through an age, and so what is the next thing to to kind of change us into the the more livable place? Perfect. And Katia, you know, you have a passion for sustainability um, and how it's important to incorporate the wider ecosystem also into our cities. So can you talk a little bit about rebalancing from your lens when it comes Mm. to sustainability? Malcolm, I really like the way you talked about that, you know, you go to a place and you just know, like Mm. it doesn't quite feel right. And I think that's probably the way I would describe a lot of the neighbourhoods that we operate in. So they're neighbourhoods that were built in the 50s and 60s, and they were perfectly fit for purpose back then. But they haven't had seen a lot of investment, um, both in, in terms of the housing stock, but also the infrastructure and the roads and the amenity and so on. And they're sort of a little bit stuck in the last century. And you go to those neighbourhoods and life just feels more difficult than it needs to be. And often, um, the, or generally, the neighbourhoods where we have a lot of land and um, homes are incredibly well located. So they ought to be really good places to live, places like Mount Roskill, places like Northcote in Auckland, close to the CBD, on public transport, but somehow life isn't as good as it ought to be there. So through the work that we do in redeveloping those neighbourhoods, we really have that opportunity to go in there and to really undertake some changes to the built environment that hopefully get us closer to the thriving communities that we all aspire to. And I think it is both about the people and their connection to each other, but also the connection of people to those places and to the natural environment. And I think, again, we can right some of the mistakes of the past. We can, you know, daylight some streams, take them out of out of um, pipes. We can look at the way we um, 
solve stormwater and flooding issues in a way that also delivers ecological benefits, that um, provides a better opportunity for people to connect with nature, and that also provides amenity that you know creates people that um, places that are beautiful and that people can have um, you know nature play in quite quite urban environments. So. That's what really excites me is that opportunity to actually go in and to rebalance. And I think the other thing I liked is I don't actually think you ever end up in balance. No. You just, it's a no. constant <laughs> sort of journey. And, you know, by the time whatever you're doing, whatever intervention you're running is, by the time you get to the end of it, you sort of start again. It's a Absolutely. cyclical kind of thing. And it's one of the... Um, one of the beauties of the urban system, I mm. think, and one of the things that keeps us all engaged in that is that it's it's never finished. It's mm. constantly evolving, and we never fully understand it. So for those of you who are a fan of this podcast would have heard the previous episode where we talked about spongy cities, mm. something I didn't know <laughs> existed. But talking about, you know, in the 50s, we probably didn't design for whether a city was impermeable or permeable, mm. and now we're thinking about these things. So it's lovely to see these changes. And one of the things I love about this podcast is learning about tangible examples of inspiring and collaborative projects that we have seen in the world. So Malcolm, you have so much experience. Can you share just a couple of examples of your favorite projects? Projects that you have seen that have really helped a city to rebalance itself. Yeah, I, I guess one that really resonates with me is the work we were doing on Northstoke, mm -hmm. which is the new town north of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. So you're sitting in Cambridgeshire, relatively flat countryside, very vulnerable to flooding. And it's just outside this kind of economic social engine of Cambridge and the university. And so what is it like to make a new town on an old airfield? So, so it's brownfield land for 12,000 homes. And I guess the challenge was we couldn't ask the people who were going to be there. You know, they don't exist. We can't do stakeholder engagement because they're not a stakeholder yet. So we, I guess we reflected on that. And one of the real interesting lessons that we took away was how do we predict the future? How do we inform ourselves maybe because the future isn't predictable? Um, and, and we went through a process where we, where we, tried to extrapolate what could be the social, economic, cultural drivers in 20 years' time. And we did some rigour with sociologists and, 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 and the wider community, and we came up with this notion of the proxy communities. And so this was the way in which we almost had a virtual stakeholder sitting there testing it, and we modelled those communities. We gathered people and we said, imagine you're, you're, you're in 20 years' time and you're in this new world of Cambridgeshire and you're the proxy community. What do you think you would need? How would you respond to the new town? And I guess that's, that's the kind of one lesson about many of the projects we work on. How do you imagine the probable futures? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you suggested that. How do we use informed foresight what are these issues that are coming and how do we give ourselves the space to adapt because there's never any single solution. There, it's, it's many futures that we're going to be ready for. And so I think that's a really interesting way to to test ourselves. And North Stowe certainly taught us that lesson. I feel like I used to play a game called SimCity. <laughs> I feel like this is SimCity with real life consequences. Well, I think, I think it's very close. And I mean, I, maybe it's kind of, you know, 
we, we should be got dressing up and imagining <laughs> who we could be in the future. And uh, but it's that thing, you know, the CSIRO have just done their Decadal mega trends study, just issued it. And there's a beautiful quote that, that you know, the future is ever changing. Mm. And I and I think that reminds us, you know, what Katie, mm. you were talking about, the agility for place to to accommodate a number of scenarios. Mm. I think that's one of the lessons, Michelle, that I, I always place enormous importance on. That's good. So all that SimCity training and Farmville training <laughs> is actually useful in real life. I'm glad. Katia, I'm going to move to you because you've worked some incredible projects not too far from where we're actually sitting right now. Can you share an example of a local project that's inspired you? And then I'll come back to you both on something that I think has inspired both of you globally. So locally. Katia. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Hobsmore Point. So <laughs> um, I started working on the Hobsmore Point project um about 15 years ago, actually. So um, for, for those people um, who are listening to this who might not be familiar with Auckland, it's in the northwest of Auckland. It's a former Air Force base that the Air Force decided was um, surf, surplus to requirements. Um, it didn't actually have a concrete runway, so it was largely, it really looked like a grass paddock, even though it was an Air Force base. And um, a conversation started probably well over 25 years ago between central and local government about what should become of this land and how it could be used to really re-envisage how good urban development happens. You know, what is, and, and, and very much in a suburban setting. So this is, you know, within Auckland, it's within what is now urban Auckland, but it's by no means central. So it's, you know, it's a, a commute by ferry or by bus or by car um, from the CBD. And there was a real desire to um, create an example of what good suburban um, development looked like. So it's a project that has a really strong sustainability ethos that is really focused on um, creating a connective connected and vibrant community where people are connected to each other, but also where they're connected to place, both to the natural environment, but also to the many layers of history that exist in that place from right through pre-European, through the Air Force um, days and more recent um, times. Um, so the, the project um, has been really satisfying to work on. What, what we did is we really pushed the boundary in terms of the diversity of housing that's delivered. So at the time, um, in that location in Auckland, it was quite inconceivable that people would want to live in terrace homes or, heavens forbid, in, a, in apartments. apartments. <laughs> yeah. And we've really seen the market change. And what we like to think, those of us who've worked on the project, is that we've been part of driving that change and proving that concept. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's been a really satisfying um, project to work on. Because like you said, the further out you go from the CBD, typically you expect a larger property with yeah. larger land. And what's yeah. happened in Hobsonville Point is you've got smaller properties with smaller land, but the land that you do have is shared. Mm. So a very different mentality. Um, so let, sustainability, now I've been to Hobsonville yeah. Point, everybody I know who lives there will never leave. It's amazing <laughs> once they're in. Their community, their sense of community in place is so strong. They just move within houses, mm -hmm. within the complex. Is that how you wanted it to be? Yeah, so, so we, when we started out, we, we had a lot of conversations about what su success might look like. And it's that, that kind of issue that we all have as we work on projects, as we're trying to sort of, you know, envisage the future. And um, the conversation we had with our board was that if we achieved a place where people had a song, strong sense of community, and we survey people, so we have data now of 10 years of how that's evolved, then really everything else in terms of the commercial success of the project would just fall into place. Because if people want to live there, 
then, you know, homes would sell, we could invest the profits that were generated into really good amenity, into um, some of the affordable housing outcomes we wanted to achieve. And so that became a really strong driver of what we wanted to do. And I think the other thing that's important with Hobsonville is, um, or for me personally, is that it is very much a suburban example. It's about mm. doing the ordinary extraordinarily well. Like it's not a big shiny CBD. You know, we've got some some beautiful homes but the intent wasn't to create hero architecture. It was, it was really to create a really fantastic place where people wanted to raise their children. And like you said, ideally didn't want to leave again. No, and yeah. great schools and being able to mm. walk and yep. bicycle safely, all of those yeah. things have been built in. I think it's interesting that both examples, Norster and Hobsonville Point, are old airfields or yeah. air force bases. Mm. I think that's just a coincidence. But I know you both have a, a city in Hamburg that you have talked about before. Yeah. Mm. So let's talk a little bit. Let's go to Europe. Talk about Hamburg to me. Well, Michelle, like, it was interesting. Katie and I were kind of chatting, you know, over dinner recently. And but lo and behold, Hamburg comes up, Huffen City. This is the project in the old docks on the river. So, you know, a floodable post-industrial site on the edge of the centre of the city. And, you know, and a remarkable project in one in many ways, and, and we'll explore some of those. But I think the thing from my point of view that I, I, you know, lucky enough to talk to some of the senior leadership who are guiding the growth of Huffen City and this, this delightful celebration of complexity Jürgen, who's the CEO, you know, we were talking about it and he talks about complexity as the asset of place, you know, that you can join and, you know, we talked about balancing, but it's not, shouldn't be in perfect balance. It should have a little bit of, you know, asymmetry and, and, and interaction. And so he talks about the complexity and it kind of plays into these ideas. I think that people like, you know, Professor Richard Sennett talks about of, of, you know, being able to accommodate, you know, contradictions and diversity mm. in places while simultaneously feeling comfortable. And so I think Huffin City was beautiful to hear that, you know, strategic leadership giving the license to talk about complexity as the asset. And we live, I think we live too much in the age of distilling down to one image and, you know, the brand line and what is the vision? Well, maybe the, the idea of great places is that they're really rich and diverse and maybe a bit edgy and complex. And mm. so, um, but Katia, I know there's a really interesting example, isn't there, of mm. the, the flooding of, of the river? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Hamburg's my hometown. So yeah. it was really interesting when I was talking to Malcolm and he was talking about Hafen City. And like, like Malcolm, I've watched that project with huge interest and have spoken, um, to the people involved in it. And what I really like about my hometown is that it has learned to embrace flooding. And I think as we move into the future of climate change and living with, um, you know, natural, quite extreme events, I think we have to ask ourselves of what, what is our approach to that? Is do we want to defend against what's happening or do we want to actually embrace what's happening? So in Hamburg, um, Hamburg is always flooded, so I've grown up there, and every you know couple of years there's a major flood event, and a lot of the central city goes underwater. And people have learned to design for it. And in Hafen City, there's an amazing example. I mean, in, in, in general, the area is subject to flooding, and the way that has been um, designed in is that the places that regularly flood are public spaces because, you know, probably for a thousand days in between flood events, you know, it's perfectly good as public space and then every so often it goes underwater and you get some warning. And on one of those public plazas, there's this cafe and it has waterproof glass and you have an exit 
on a higher street that's further at the back. And you can sit in this cafe and you can watch the water rise on your window. And I just think <laughs> it's that celebration of nature and the force of nature and of what's happening and just making uh, making that an asset and i think your comment around that um i think we need to as professionals all be careful that we don't strive for complete control and tidiness you know there is this kind of edginess this kind of unpredictability um you know that that makes cities exciting Underwater Cafe, what's next? And being comfortable in the uncomfortable. Okay, now look, no project is ever perfect and we always learn new things along the way. And I'm a real advocate for sharing some of these lessons and stories to help others who might be facing similar challenges or might not know these challenges are about to hit them. So, Kasha, I'm going to start with you. You've mentioned some amazing examples of what's worked well. Can you share some lessons learned in any of the projects you've been on? I think that the biggest lesson, I think, for me is that um, you never know what will come. You know, if, if you work, if you're involved in long-term projects that might run for 10, 20 years' time, it's it's impossible to predict what will happen um, during the life of the project, let alone beyond that. And I think that the biggest lesson is really to, for, for me, is to resist the temptation to be too definitive early. You know, I think the minute you say, um, I know what I'm building in 10 years' time on this corner, I think you're in trouble because you cannot know and you cannot know what's appropriate at that point in time. So I think the biggest lesson for me is that we're constantly learning, we're constantly needing to adapt to changing circumstances. And I think that flexibility and then that very active management of projects is really important so that you that you can respond. I'm letting your stakeholders know that things might mm. change. That's right. And it's challenging because inevitably communities and politicians want certainty, you know, and I think... Um, I think there's, we're always tempted to create more certainty than there actually is. And I think it's something we need to learn as a society to be more comfortable with uncertainty. And I think, you know, the last couple of years have really taught us that. 100%. Malcolm, you have been all over the globe working on all these projects. Can you share a couple of key lessons in your rebalancing yeah. journey? Yeah, Michelle, look, I mean, uh, if only it all worked every time, hey. <laughs> um, but I, I guess it, it kind of, Katia, responds to your point, but maybe with a a different angle in this notion of the speed of change of a place. Yeah. We we often talk about, we were talking earlier about, you know, the speed of change that we exist in the moment, but we think of generations gone by who've lived through, you know, the digitization or a, or a lunar launch, you know, when they started growing up with, you know, paper and pens in a yeah. different world. And so I guess the example, Michelle, was in 2005 or so, maybe six, we, we were working on what was called Dongtan Eco City. This is on the Yangtze River in Shanghai, um, an incredible series of aspirations of, of a place that understood the sensitivities of its ecologies, its flooding, um, the, the retention of existing communities, things that I say now and there's a bit, little bit of a, of course, but in 2005, in a context of the rapid urbanisation of China, those were fairly radical. And I think that the, the, the defining of what was an ecological city, a city that was responsible in balance with its natural systems, possibly talking about carbon, talking about food systems, here are issues that we feel much more current with, possibly jumped too far. And I think that illustrates to me, reminds me of the aspiration for innovation and that prediction of futures is absolutely critical but cities can be a little bit, you know, impatient with big ideas that are coming, the grand vision. And so 
I think the ability to show the stepping stones of change is one of the lessons that we took away from Dong Tan. I'd like to think we were on the right path for ecological considerations and inclusive communities. Maybe we didn't map the stepping stones well enough that allowed the politics and, and the city to see the journey it was going to take and it was just too far away from them and and it, you know, and it fell away. So, so yeah. just because you have the crystal ball and you know what the end point is, you've got yeah, to bring everybody in. A little bit, yeah, I think so. And I think what yeah. Katia said, also be willing to kind of, you know, bounce around a bit on the journey yeah. and uh, and try to kind of allow the, the points of comfort in the immediacy to sit in the context of, of a bigger vision, maybe. Mm. Mm. So we often talk about the power of partnership and none of us work alone. So let's talk about how positive impact can come from collaboration and working together. Um, Katia, your organisation has been working with Arup on a new neighbourhood project um, in the Wesley area of Auckland. Can you talk about some of the things that you're excited about in this project? Yeah, so so in that particular neighbourhood, we're really looking at what we would need to do differently from what we do currently if we are to move towards a low-carbon future in line with New Zealand's ambitions in this area. And what really excites me about the project is that it is at the neighbourhood level because I think cities are complex and I think the issues we're dealing with in terms of carbon reduction, they're really complex at the city level. And I think at the neighbourhood level, you can potentially get your head around it. So I think quite excited around that. And what we're looking at is we're looking at um, establishing a baseline. So what are the carbon emissions that are produced in our current approach? And we're looking at um, buildings, both in terms of operational energy and embodied energy, infrastructure, similarly, the embodied energy and the operational energy. And then most excitingly for me is transport. Because in this particular neighbourhood, and probably in most neighbourhoods in Auckland, over 40% of the emissions actually come from transport. And I think that is where the, the link is really strong with what we've talked about before, is if we can um, sort of nudge neighbourhoods to be places where people live more locally, they travel out of that neighbourhood less. When they do travel out of that neighbourhood, they can do so through active modes or by public transport. Then we can really shift the dial. And the issue we have in the carbon space and in measuring carbon is that those impacts are incredibly hard to quantify and they're even harder to attribute to, you know, what action caused that. But they are the area where we can make the biggest difference. So we absolutely need to focus on it. So that's what really excites me about that particular project, that it has us have that conversation because I do think that um, it's probably, I think our biggest challenge is how do we um, how do we make decisions that are evidence-based where we can attribute benefit in our urban centres around low-carbon transport systems. I think we can understand buildings. I think we can understand energy use and production, but I think it's the transport that we're really struggling with. So really excited about that. Do you see a future where we start to measure that? So you talked about mm. measuring carbon. Are we going to have our neighbourhood carbon index and sort of my, my neighbourhood's more carbon friendly than this? <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of cool. You know? Because I think, um, I do think, you know, people are naturally competitive. And, um, you know, going back to Hobsonville, I hear stories about um, neighbours comparing energy bills over the back, back fence. <laughs> getting quite competitive. Look, look what mine is, you know. And so I think I think that's great. And I think it is yeah. it is about um, really engaging your community in that conversation. And if 
a neighborhood carbon indicator is what it takes, then we should do that. You heard it here yeah. first, people. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, partnerships. I mean, you've been involved in so many with Arab in your career. So what are your favorites? Oh, wow. Um, a city process is a kind of a platform of collaboration. And I think sometimes we get caught up in you know, the history of design and it being my vision or the, you know, the, 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 the stroke of the, the master pen. Um, but the collaboration kind of brings us back into space. And so I think there's two that actually are really interesting. One is in relation to insurance. And so working with Lloyds of London on what was called the resilience shift program and have a look at Arab.com if you want to kind of see a bit more understanding the way in which insurance and reinsurance is changing the way in which we think about our strategies of cities because, you know, underwriting risk is a key thing. And unless we as the physical designers understand that, but I think it, it, the second one plays off what Caddy was sharing. And, you know, it was in the Ken Livingston, you know, mayoral ship in London that the idea of carbon and coming together and how do cities approach this issue and share the intelligence? And so the C40, carbon 40 cities, I think it's now almost 80 cities have joined. And Arab have been really lucky to work with C40 mm. and, a, and, and that's manifest in a piece of work of the green and thriving neighbourhoods. Mm. You know, working with C40, understanding how carbon drives this livable outcome. And we can only do that by working in partnership with people who bring this, this knowledge and nuanced and viewpoints that complement the way in which the, the physical strategies of place come together. So it's delightful to, to work in partnership. And I think it's the, it's the only way, if it can be so precise, you know, it's the only way that great mm. outcomes are achieved. Mm. And while we're talking about partnerships and trust, we're not just talking about commercial relationships and mm. relationships with other organisations, although those are important. Um, we're here in New Zealand and there's a Māori saying, it goes, he me nui o te ao, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. What's the most important thing in the world? It's the people, it's the people, it's the people. Katia, you have been working with people and places together. Can you share a little bit about the journey you've been on with some of the communities you've been working with? Yeah, yeah. Um, Michelle, I might talk about two things. I think there is the, the work with community, but there's also the work with mana whenua, which is our term um, to refer to those Indigenous peoples that live in that place and that have, you know, a sense of guardianship over that place. So I think in terms of communities and in working with people, I think we've, we've touched on the fact that it is incredibly important to bring people with you. And I think Malcolm talked about the dangers of moving at a speed where you don't bring people with you. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's no use being right if nobody believes that you're right and nobody comes with you on that journey. So, you know, it's, it's really important to... Um, work in partnership with your community and with other entities that um, represent those communities. So in, in Auckland and in New Zealand, that is generally our local boards and our councils, so working really closely with those is important. In terms of working with iwi and mana whenua, I think what, what I've seen in my career sort of over the last um, 20 years is really a maturing of the conversation. We are 20 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of the conversations with iwi Māori were around um, reflecting cultural values and what we did in the design, reflecting the, um, you know, the, the very sen the strong sense of connection with the natural environment and what we did. So really a drive to protect the natural environment. So and I've seen that conversation mature to one that is now also about creating economic prosperity. 
And certainly at Hopsmoor Point, we've worked in partnership um, with the two local iwi. And I think um, it's, it's probably been one of the most rewarding parts of my career to work alongside Ngāti Fato Akapra mm-hmm. on an actual development project involving 500 homes, you know, where they purchased the land, they funded the development, and they created prosperity and wealth for their people to reinvest how they see fit in what they would like to do. And I think we have an enormous opportunity in New Zealand because we have iwi entities, a lot of whom have land, a lot of whom have um, an investment horizon that is very long-term. They're talking about 100-year plans. So it's very well aligned to what we've talked about, about long-term sustainability outcomes. And I think, well, I'm really excited of where we're going as a country. We've got a long way to go, but we're really, um, you know, started the journey so that's really good and Malcolm you're relatively new back Mm. here so Mm. with fresh eyes have you sort of encountered any of this sort of old knowledge coming back to becoming new knowledge yeah I I look very lucky as as you say to to be working on one or two projects Mm. in New Zealand and and with Iwi and understanding this relationship the deep you know kind of almost pre-science relationship of of human and place and I guess For a little while now, we've been talking about what are the systems and ways of thinking of redressing climate impact. And so we talk about the need for regenerative systems. We talk about ideas of circular economies, of economies using waste as an input to a cycle. And we talk about these ideas often formed in a kind of, you know, a kind of scientific model of thinking. And then I sit and I listen to, to some of the iwi, you know, advisors and partners on the projects. And I hear it, not as a scientific model, but as a kind of deep human way and understanding. And I think there's a great lesson to be learnt of those, those ways of thinking and the relationships to the required strategies of addressing some of the challenges. We don't have to reinvent. We have to re-listen and reapply those. And so I'm really enjoying that journey of relearning this added dimension to these systems that we think were the answer, but they've been in existence for, you know, millennia. And so I, you know, really enjoying that little journey at the moment. And I think that's part of Western science is we've always gone, let's put something in a petri dish and see what happens in the dish. Where we work with councils and government, we go, let's build this silo over here. And that's the department that deals with that. And I think one of the strong things that come from these community conversations is the concept of motoronga Māori, which is everything is connected. Yeah. You change one thing, how does it change everything else? And so I love this sort of complexity and systems thinking that has always been. Well, Michelle, I, I think that's it. I mean, I always you know, try to, as an architect, I try to draw the diagram. And I, I guess the, the you know, I sometimes see the, the Western model of thinking as a bit of a triangle and, mm. you know, humanity is at the top kind of controlling systems. And but the system thinking is a weave and it's circular and it's kind of resilient, interesting by its circularity. So, you know, two diagrams, think about the difference between a triangle and a circle of weaving and Maybe that's the way we could think about city strategies as well. Yeah, so much to learn. And you two both have so much experience and depth of knowledge. Um, I'd love to pick your brains a little bit if you had some top tips or key advice for others when it comes to rebalancing our cities. So Katya, you have provided some great insights. For people who want to follow a similar path to you, what key tips can you share to help them to get started? 
it's a tough question. I, I think that um, to sort of sum it up, I, I, I think it's important that we take an approach that is at its core evidence-based. You know, so we've talked a little bit around that systems are complex and it's about the experience and how it feels when you get there. And that's not to say that the evidence doesn't matter. I think the evidence is unbelievably important. And I think it is really important that we take an evidence-based approach to the decisions we make. But then I think there's also a danger of losing ourselves in the detail. And I think you've talked a little bit about how science approaches the world, how government traditionally approaches the world. And you can just become you know, go down a rabbit hole of, of solving one things and breaking a whole lot of other things. So I think, you know, taking a science-based approach, but then having the ability to step back and to go, does the whole make sense? You know, the decisions that I'm making based on this, do they make sense? Or have I, you know, is there sort of an, an error of judgment somewhere in there? So I think it's the constant back and forward between the detail and the big picture and somehow managing to have the conversation around that challenge with your communities and the people that are making the decisions about mm. what they're working on. So I think that's probably my my greatest um, takeaway, yeah. <laughs> so Malcolm, there are going to be listeners who are working in this current space, but also just people living in their cities who go, oh, actually, it doesn't feel quite right. Do you have some top tips for anybody listening about rebalancing? I, look, I, I think rebalancing for me is about... Um, Sometimes even the language we use to talk about cities, you know, we often get asked, what is the master plan of a place? And even in the language master plan, it talks about this kind of dominant single direction. I think we have, we were talking earlier about the way in which technology can be one of those issues that rebalances a city. You know, what's new that we can, tools that we can use. We live in a really unique point where we have a technology where we can model systems, where we can test scenarios. This idea of a single solution, I think is redundant. It has mm. to be redundant because we need resilience on options. So I think the way in which we test multiple scenarios, you know, pick a, pick a way of living, pick a way of moving, pick an impact of climate and test those scenarios. I think that's the way. So I'd kind of you know, uh, this is kind of, you know, turkeys at Christmas. I'd get rid of master plan. I'd talk about, I'd talk about kind of the scenarios of place and experience and using the, the fact that we can have digital systems that give us a pretty good clue on the way it comes out. So mm. that could be an idea to, to, yeah, I might just on, on that. I think, I think you're right. And I think the other thing I would say is, is as professionals um, working in this field, I don't think it's about amazing master plans, amazing visions, hero architecture, shiny city centres. It's about turning up to work every day and doing a damn good job and being considerate around it and doing the stuff that actually makes a difference to ordinary people's lives. You know, it's really doing the ordinary well. And I think that's um, that's the challenge, you know, because we all love the shiny thing and we get, you know, disproportionately obsessed with it when actually what matters to most people is the neighbourhood that they live in. And Katya, Michelle, I know we were talking earlier about, you know, you know, what are those people? I guess mm. one of the most beautiful experiences I've had, we're really lucky to have a, a working relationship with the Lego Foundation. And that allows us to roll out carpets and lots of Lego and allow children to try to represent their cities of the future. And so we had a great experience recently at the National Gallery of Victoria 
working with children. They were queuing up, you know. It was just amazing to build their visions of place. And I think that's one of mm. the beautiful things to, to be able to do, to explore place through these multiple viewpoints and particularly through the viewpoint of a child because I guess one of the great tests, one of the great things that I think humans do is they give us license to change place if the projection of hope in the next generation is strong. And that goes back to, I think, someone listening to Iwi and, and relationship of handing thing on and all of that. So there may be the, you know, working with Lego might be an option for us. But uh. <laughs> I feel like there's so many things we can play. Um, sadly, that is all we have time for on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Katia and Malcolm for your insights. Um, I think today we've learned um, about a few things. One is we were first, you heard it here first, Carbon Cities Leaderboard. That's what we need to be able to create. Um, we've learned about the importance of people and place and connection to people and place. Uh, we've learned about moving fast, but not too fast because <laughs> nobody will come with you. But the thing I take away is all of those years playing SimCity, <laughs> Farmville, and playing with Lego actually could be the most impactful thing to get our crystal balls ready to think about the future that we want to live in and the type of balance that we want for our cities. If you want to learn more about what we've discussed today, you can access the links to the projects on our show notes. This sadly is the last episode for season one. So if you've not already listened to our five previous episodes, we cover things like net zero buildings, resilience, spongy cities, energy transitions, and so much more please do listen. Stay tuned for season two. More information will be coming from our on that soon. And make sure you subscribe to us. We are Sustainable Forces on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming service. Thank you, audience. You're amazing. <laughs> Richard's a bit liable. <laughs>